This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a very special program uh, for you today. It's a science program, so if you are scared by that, turn off now. I'll give you a second. <laughs> All right, they're gone. Um, don't worry about those people. They've gone somewhere else. Now, Dr. Jen's with me, and she has brought in today an entire group of her students. Tell us about it, Jen. I have. Good morning, Dr. Shane. So I think some of our listeners know that part of what I do when I'm not hanging out at Triple R is teaching science communication at the University of Melbourne. So I get these amazing groups of incredible scientists, and I bring them all into a room together and make them talk to each other and not sound so much like scientists. It's really fun. There you go. That's rare. Anyway, yeah, we, we kicked all the kicked all the normal hosts out this week and we decided we would do a show which we do every year um, with the students and they've been working diligently over the last uh, what month or more more actually yeah these guys have been working hard for a month and a half yeah and we're we're chatting now so because when your body pumps adrenaline when you're really nervous (laughs) it can only happen for about a minute so if we we waste another minute um they'll be be good to go no these (laughs) guys are awesome it's going to be fun so we've got an hour of science for you folks we've got some news then we've got some um particularly long segment stories uh which will give you and then some more news towards the end and let me introduce the team for today. It's Richard. Good morning. Uh, morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you here. Rosie. Hi there. And we have Nancy. She's Hello. Point, pointing at her name, Dave. <laughs> you freaked me out by doing that. I thought, have I got it wrong? <laughs> and Molly, welcome. Good morning, everyone. You're not going to throw up, eh? Oh, no. That's good. That's good. She told me she might throw up earlier, and I thought, Jesus, not in the studio, please. I'm a sympathy vomiter. I might throw up Ooh, on the panel. That would have made a mess. Anyway, we're going to jump into some news first up, and Rosie, you uh, have the first ticket. Yes, you got I for us? sure do. Well, I know you guys, but after a really long day, the only logical thing I feel like I can do is go to sleep. If I don't go to sleep, tensions start happening, things get thrown, it's nasty. But... Have you guys ever stopped to consider that from an evolutionary perspective, sleep is the most illogical thing we could actually do to ourselves? So for some reason, every single being seems to shut down for a good portion of the day, which is where you become vulnerable to predators, you're unable to eat or mate, and you're kind of just a wasting time doing, we don't really know what. We don't really know why we do it either. But scientists are sort of trying to track back in time, trying to figure out where did sleep start? So what... What was the first species? Like, you know what's a really good idea? Shutting down for half the day. That's a great idea. Mm. So what scientists have recently figured out is that there's a jellyfish, which, uh, truth be told, is my spirit animal. It is the laziest animal I've ever heard about. It sits upside down on the floor, and with its head or its bell facing the floor and its tentacles sitting up, it sort of literally just sits on the floor, blobs around for a bit. Mm. Maybe some seaweed will come in and grow on it, so that's how it gets its food. Um But even these guys, they have no kind of brain, they have no nervous system. Instead of their body signals being sent out by like a switchboard, it's kind of just dominoes. So a signal will come in from one part of their body and it'll just cascade a domino around the rest of the body. That's literally how they think. They have no one saying, hmm, this would be logical. Hmm, let's sit upside down now. And it turns out that even these guys who do literally nothing all day, they still show patterns of sleep so at night time they're a third of the one third less active than usual and my favorite stat from this research was that when you make these jellyfish pull an all-nighter so they don't get their little one third of um, less activity period they're actually 17 percent less active the next day oh wow yeah so it turns out that they start doing freaky shit well i don't know <laughs> like humans, they, like, they don't like they don't go crazy they don't start suddenly like try, try and eat a shark or something <laughs> you know like 
yeah. I can't do it. Um, no, they just they just blob a lot more. So yeah, yeah I guess I'm all the stories. Get your sleep because even jellyfish need it. Yeah, I, I never really thought about sleeping fish and that sort of stuff. Mm. Like imagine, you know, I just have this image of how the hell do they wake up in here in, <laughs> in, inside <laughs> a bigger fish? You know, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. Exactly. One, one big night with the guys. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a sleepy jellyfish. I mean, how would you tell the difference? Well, that's it. They, they just sort of sit upside down and do less movement as opposed to sitting down with a bit more movement. Yeah, I don't know. Did the researchers go? Is it asleep? Yeah, they, they would <laughs> prod them awake. They prod them awake to give the all nighter. So they started slowing down. They'd be like, get up, get up, get up, and they're like, yeah. get it with a blob. Oh so, wow! That's yeah, pretty well, great. sleep. It's one. It is one of those things which uh, par- parents of young kids you know they're right like jellyfish yeah richard what do you got for us oh right yes yeah. so um continuing that sort of oceany theme um sharks uh <laughs> only chose this subject so i could start with the word sharks right okay everyone's <laughs> attention so sharks they stir um well they stir strong emotions in your average australian um i surf and dive so you know they most definitely grab my interest but um despite all the the attention they get uh, there's still a lot of things that we don't seem to understand about them, um, which includes, it seems, how long they live. Now, amazingly, it looks as though we may have been underestimating this by as much as 20 years or more. Um, so, for example, your great white uh, was thought to have a maximum age of just over 50, while they might actually be surviving into their early 70s. Hmm. The reason for this misconception, it looks like the standard method for ageing sharks is probably flawed. Uh, so the majority of fish, they're aged by looking at something, uh, it's called an otolith. It's a lump of calcium carbonate that grows in their inner ear. And it grows in these consistent layers over their entire life. Uh, sharks and rays, they don't have otoliths. So they, they're aged by, unfortunately, slicing through their spines <laughs> and counting distinct bands. It's a bit like counting rings on a tree, okay? So some shark researchers started to notice that certain species of shark were outliving uh, the age indicated using this method by a lot. Uh, you know, in some cases, a couple of decades. So a study was conducted at James Cook University in Queensland, and they compared age data using this method uh, with ages using other methods like carbon dating, for example. And they found that a third of the shark and ray populations they looked at um, have actually had their ages significantly underestimated. So this means it is a fundamental issue. It's not just your odd geriatric shark <laughs> popping up here and there, you know. Um, so why does this matter? Well, many shark species are endangered and age is a key input into estimates of how threatened they are, uh, decisions around whether they should be fished or not, that sort of thing. And it looks as though these evaluations are, are based on faulty data. It's a big deal, right? Um, the implications are still being assessed, uh, but it's it's clear that whatever they are, a new standard method for accurately aging sharks and rays needs to be introduced. Hopefully, mm. not one way you end up cutting your <laughs> spines. <laughs> We're not talking about a small change, though. I mean, if you if you think something is living till fifty, and it actually lives on average to seventy five, that's a fifty percent error. Yeah, it's so a big, that's big pretty deal. big. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I think um, it's it's particularly prevalent prevalent in the bigger sharks. So they found that once a, star- a shark stops growing, these bands are a- actually stop forming. Mm. So that's that's the issue. Oh yeah. right, yeah, yeah. 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 So that's. Um, yeah, because I always thought the hammerheads lasted longest, but maybe that's... Well, well who knows? Who yeah, knows? this might throw yeah. this all out of kilter. Yeah, so it's really stuff. interesting, yeah. And my favourite thing in the sea. Oh, yes. Yeah, some people like jellyfish. But <laughs> oh, they're pretty cool, guys. Give them yeah, a break. I, I, I love sharks because they're so, they're so vilified. Thank you, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. but endangered. And, pe- you know, everyone, oh, you know, save a whale, but you don't hear people say save mm. a shark. And no. sharks are, are core to 
the ecology of, of our oceans. Absolutely, and, and they've been around for forever. They're dinosaurs. They're literally dinosaurs. Well, folks, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we'll we be back in just a moment, we're going to give you some more science. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. 102.7. Uh, you are listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're having a bit of fun here today. We have some of Jenny Martin's students in here doing the show for us, and they're doing a great job. Now, Molly is going to give us some more detailed depth science. Molly, over to you. Thanks, Jane. Um, well, one of my fondest memories is of when I just finished high school and all of my friends took a road trip down to the Great Ocean Road. And one of the places we visited was the Tower Hill National Park. Mm-hmm. And we'd all just got our licenses, so we weren't walking anywhere. We drove through the whole park. It's <laughs> um, a little dodgy. Yeah. Well, you're allowed to, but one of the things that happened was that this male emu just kind of stopped in front of our car and just had a bit of a wander. And finally he took off, and this chick went... Oh no, dad's left me and just had this full on panic right, attack. Yeah, yeah. Sprinted across in front of the car, did a face plant face first into the asphalt. It was absolutely fine and it turned out to be quite kind of funny when it got up and kind mm. of looked a bit confused and waddled off. But um, ever since then I've kind of really loved Tower Hill. It's just such an amazing, beautiful place. But I found out a lot more about it since then and I think that makes it even more interesting. So Tower Hill is actually a volcano that erupted about 32,000 years ago and it's a mar volcano. And a mar volcano is a volcano where magma comes up from the Earth's crust and hits a reservoir of water Mm. and it converts all this groundwater to steam and the pressure builds up because steam has more volume than water and finally it just explodes and goes off like an atomic bomb leaving this massive crater in the ground. And... So this mar is just one of a series of volcanoes in a province of volcanic activity that stretches all the way from Yarrabend Park in Melbourne through to Mount Gambier in the west of South Australia. And the thing I really love about these volcanoes is we don't know why they're happening. (laughs) So normally volcanoes occur because either two tectonic plates are colliding and causing pressure or because there's a hole in the Earth's crust. Like The best we can come up with for these volcanoes is that maybe the crust is a little uneven and it's buckling a little bit, but, but no one's really quite sure why these volcanoes are happening. But like clockwork, once every five to 10,000 years, we get a brand new volcano popping up somewhere. And in the middle of a plate. Yeah, in yeah, the yeah. middle of a plate, in the middle of Victoria. Mm. So we've got like Mount Elephant, Mount Buninyong. We've got all of the basaltic plains around Melbourne that make it really fertile. That's from really runny lava from a different kind of volcano just kind of spreading out over the plain. And like this happens quite regularly. So the last one was only 5,000 years ago, right, at Mount mm. Gambia. And it was another really explosive one where you've got the groundwater turning into basically a bomb and the amazing the amazing thing about this is that um it's actually within local indigenous memories they have stories about this volcano going off and apparently the ground became really really hot so they started using it to cook (laughs) so they would bury things in these ground ovens and leave them there while while well, it cooked their food, but then the groundwater started to rise and flooded all of their ovens and there was this screaming noise in the air that they heard right before the eruption. And these 
explosive volcanoes, these Mar volcanoes, we've actually never seen one go off in scientific history. Mm. So these these stories are the best kind of description of this volcano type that we have. So we're relying on kind of this indigenous memory passed down from generation to generation to tell these stories of these amazingly explosive volcanoes going off. So, mm. It's yeah. super cool stuff. I, I I always you know find it funny when um you know geologists talk about this that h- how do we get these things? And to me it's always like you know it's the the carpet. Have you ever put a mat on top of carpet? Mm. And you'd think it would ride up at the edges, but it doesn't. It rides up in the middle and you get those. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so, so, you know, a place similarly, you'll, I think you'll get these points of mm. defect points, call them, where shit will happen. You yeah. know, if there's yeah. pressure from the edges, you're pushing it from the edges, which we know is happening. Mm. You're going to get defect points in the middle because the whole thing's moving around. So mm. it's, um, but we don't think of Victoria as having uh, no. volcanoes. And but the, the thing is, like, if we have these explosive volcanoes, they actually give very, very little warning. Mm. So we could mm. have one pop up any like it's unlikely later today before could, the end of the show <laughs> we could have one pop up later today just a brand new volcano i mean it's probably not likely to happen for another couple of thousand years but it could yeah. oh yeah. it's amazing i mean i always wonder why every two three years i always have like a crack in my house and i go but i don't feel anything moving so i don't understand why you know i constantly had to look and then it's just yeah. My house is moving. Well, it could be a volcano knowing. under your It could house. be. It could I know, be. I know. It's, it's yeah. quite crazy. So I, I anyway. read a book when I was a kid, which I've been trying to find. I can't, if anyone knows the story, please send it in. Um, about this, this kid who his house is built on a volcano. Whoa. I can't remember the name of this story. I've been trying to find it for my kids. If anyone knows that story, send it oh, in Lord. via Twitter. <laughs> Please. Sounds like a very short story. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen while he was in it. But, uh, well, thank you, Molly. That's oh, good right, stuff. Sorry. Interesting stuff. Now, Nancy, over to you. Oh, thank you, Shane. All right, so I don't know what anyone else has been doing this last Friday, but I happened to went to a rooftop bar with a group of friends, had a really good drink, and just enjoying my time after a very stressful week of university. You were supposed to be preparing for the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that, that's how I prepared. <laughs> so, yes, they were really great. And then we just enjoying this beautiful sunset. And we saw this magnificent, like hundreds of bats just flying across the skies. And I thought it was magnificent. And one of my friends actually told me that the bats actually being found dead and injured a lot near all these um, skyscrapers mm. with large window around the city. And I thought that was pretty um, weird. And I did some research, you know, before I went to the radio today. And then I realized that human structures are actually, you know, it dominate the city now, but they only existed for like a blink of an eye, like toward like evolutional history. And for the bats, they actually never met this smooth vertical structure before right. ever in yeah. their life. So because, you know, the only other smooth structure that they know is actually water, water, which is horizontal. So everyone see it and they, they, they just think of it as water. So because of this, actually, we know that the bat version of water is actually hardwired instead of being learned because juvenile bats actually who have never encountered water will actually repeatedly try to drink from a smooth you know, metal plate. So oh. Okay. Pretty cool, yeah. It can see really... where can see where this is going. I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, sorry, <laughs> it's pretty oh, cool. So, 
what is even cooler is actually how they travel around as bats. So they use, you know, echolocation. We always heard it, but, you know, what is echolocation? So basically it helped the bats to see by creating this noise and the echo sound wave that bounce off object while they listen back is what they know there is an object. And, uh, you know, we know that this kind of thing also, like whales and dolphin also do this too, because mm. there's no, you know, visibility underwater. And humans. And humans. And, and humans yes, who are yes. visually impaired do it as well. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. amazing. We, we, we are catching up. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we are catching up. up. That's mm. awesome. So anyway, so as the bat fly toward building at an angle, you know, and making this clicking noise to actually see where they're going, the lack of echo that coming off these smooth surfaces, you you know, make them appear as gaps to this bat. You know, to understand why, you know, they have this problem, think of the beam of sound from the bat as equivalent to, let's say, a beam of light from a torch. So if you were to shine a torch in a mirror at nighttime, you won't see any reflection at all until you're actually very close mm. or like exactly really near it. Or if, so, you, if you had, you'd have to point it straight yeah, yeah, back at yourself. Yeah, yeah, so if you're even back. off by the slightest angle, it'll just head off somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. even us who walking very slowly with a torch mm, mm. cannot see it, and a bat is actually flying yeah, yeah. with very you know high speed. So glass window are actually like you know equivalent to these kind of mirrors to bat, and you know they while they instinctively know that you know the lack of echo from below while they're flying is actually a pond or a lake. To them, they just assume that any vertical surfaces that have no echo are gaps. Fly through. Yeah, yeah. just just fly right through, and this probably partially explains why you know a large number of them are being killed by these really tall skyscrapers. And you know, I guess there's some listener out there and thinking, you know, so what if a few less bat in the world? It's not that important. I mean, we don't know what they do anyway. It actually is. So mm. we think of bees as a superhero of our farming industry and, you know, but bat actually help the farmers to actually using not a lot of pesticide because they eat moth. They mm. eat a lot of mm. insect. And not only that, you know, they also pollinate a lot of fruit variety as well. So they they are amazing creatures, and we really should take care of them. There because are, there yeah. are yeah, there are a lot of bats that are only like that are found in like these in, cities, in, like in Melbourne. There's something yeah. like a dozen species of micro bat that can live in and around the the city. So for so many of them to be affected mm. by this problem. Well, the, yeah. the funny thing is too is that uh, as you say, I mean the optical analog here is a good one, but. You could put structures around these buildings that are relatively easy on the eye yeah. that would reflect the sound uh, in a more sort of disturbed way that would allow the bats to avoid the building. So this is a completely avoidable problem. Yes, I mean, it it costs is. a little bit of money, but, you know, it, it is. It, it, it's doable. Yeah, I mean, we do have, because of the science of, you know, studying how echolocation work, mm. we actually do have uh, something to help the bats. So we do have, like, acoustic bat deterrents. Mm. So you can put them around structures, actually right, help right. the bat. So basically it's not going to be anything to us. I mean, they will release a really high-frequency sound to the bat that we can't hear it, but yep. they will, and it's like a screaming out to them, like, don't come near. Here. Big and thing, yeah, avoid. Big, big thing, yeah. avoid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Science people. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We know how yeah. stuff works, and now we're going to help people. Well, and the, and the and to be fair, that you know, the city, especially in the north yeah. region, is you know, uh, with this the, some of these beautifully designed apartment buildings. I mean, I just I look at them <laughs> and marvel. Um, <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, I, I probably see them in the same way the bats see them as you know, just wish they weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> 
but they are getting closer to you know especially there's a lot of bats around the melbourne zoo and around the trees around the parks in that area yeah, yeah, this is a this is a really big problem. So, yeah. yeah, and they they do contribute a lot to our city. I mean, they're they're beautiful. Yeah, yeah. as you say, big pollinators. You know, flowering gums, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. corn, cotton, a lot of variety of crops eh? mm. save billions of dollars, people. Yeah, for a few hundred, well, maybe not a few hundred, a few thousand bucks. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we sort this out. So yeah. yeah, and you just regulate this so that every time a new building goes up, this has to be taken into account. Yeah, yeah, That's absolutely. Be, so yeah. Thank you, Nancy. Thank uh, you. Molly, good stuff. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks, for some music, and we'll be back in a moment with some more science to keep you uh, going on Sunday. Triple. <sighs> hey, you are listening to 3 Triple R, folks. Uh, it's Einstein and Gogo. We have a great show today with... Uh, Jenny's brought her students in, and they've been preparing for months, and they're giving us a whole of the science. <laughs> Uh, I've been drinking. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Might have a few before I got here today, but uh, that was just to prepare, as as I do every week. Um, no, that's I seriously don't do that. <laughs> Rosie, you've got something for us. I sure do. So I really don't have an eye for economics. Those kind of numbers have just never really stood out to me. But I do remember being completely outraged in primary school when fundraising large photo frogs went from a dollar to a dollar twenty. Oh yeah. Who carries that extra twenty cents around? That pissed me off beyond belief. <laughs> I was outraged with that. And I was also, as a massive sweet tooth, really upset to find that honey was slowly creeping up in prices. Because they're scratching my head being like, God, if Winnie the Pooh was written these days, he'd have to be a millionaire to keep up with these prices. And I started wondering what on earth is going on. Why is honey getting so much more expensive? So I did a bit of research. And it turns out in the last 10 years, we've seen the weirdest phenomenon with bees. And it's what we've called the colony collapse. And so it's where bees are not just dying, but they're quite literally disappearing. We're not even finding dead bees sitting around the place. They're just not showing back up at their hives. Um, and it could be due to a lot of different things. There's things like pesticide use could be throwing off their senses. There might be food stress um, with more the population rising and housing going up. There could be habitat loss along that side. Um, or it could be climate change. Um, and it could also be the fact that they just don't know where to go. They don't have enough hives that they're able to access. Um, so the reason this is really bothering me is that it's causing less honey to be co- to be produced. But if we actually think about it, bees are doing so much more than just producing honey. In terms of their economical and agricultural value, one-third of the food that we eat is actually because bees are around um, pollinating it. So if we lose bees, we literally lose at least a third of the food we have, if not more, because then the food chain gets thrown way out. So... What people have been suggesting lately is that we try to increase the population of bees. So if we have more bees flying around, we naturally have a bit more honey. We keep this sort of fertilisation of the plants going around. Um, and I'd love to get involved, but as a city slicker, there's not much I feel like I can really do. I've always imagined beekeepers are kind of men that live out way out in the city. They're kind of like a... Um, an alien to the urban space. They sort of feel like a real rule <laughs> thing. And <clears throat> But with this awareness of the colony collapse, people are actually bringing bees in to their homes, quite literally. There's sort of been an explosion of what we call urban beekeeping. So within society, which is closer to the city, people are now putting hives in the strangest places. You know, they're putting it on roofs of their houses or even there's hotels that have beehives on top of their hotels, which fertilises their um, herb gardens, which they then use to produce their nice herbs. So... This sort of sounded kind of crazy to me because a lot of us think of seeing bees and we're like, oh, don't sting me, don't hurt me. Why would we want to bring them into our urban societies? And if you actually think about what a bee does, okay, its job is to leave the hive as a female bee, find pollen and get home. 
if it stings you, it dies too. So she doesn't want to do it either. She's only going to do it as a defense mechanism. And if you're perceived as a threat to her hive, which unless you're literally there shaking the hive around and trying mm. to squish all the bees, you're not actually a threat. You're not likely to get stung. Yeah. I mean, the, the main thing, thing for stings is, you know, and, and I completely appreciate this from the mm. bees perspective mm. is a barefoot grass, bee on grass, yep. foot on bee. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, you know, if something that size was stepping on me, yep. I might stab you with a knife. Yeah, I, if I had something or on I had a stinger, <laughs> yeah, you're going to get it. You carry That's, a knife, Shane. I do, <laughs> always. Uh, butter knife. Um, <laughs> but, Look for the falling feet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, most bee stings, it's not, mm. I think some people have the impression that if they run into a bee, mm. <laughs> it mm. will sting them. Well, yeah. The, no. The, if you're in a room with a bee, it's not going to be like, oh, a human, I will sting it. Yeah. It's yeah. just trying to find some pollen, give it a break. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with this overwhelming response to urban beekeeping, um, there's been some research done and they found that the biggest challenge for beekeepers out in rural societies is mostly the overwintering survival. So how many bees actually survive over winter? That's their off season. So they found that in urban societies, the overwintering survival was actually 23% higher in urban societies than out in the country. Mm. And as well that they actually yielded more honey. So about 10 pounds more on average per year than the rural amounts which would produce so it's 26 pounds per year in rural i mean in um urban versus the 16 pounds in rural areas so it's not a double but it's a significant extra amount of honey so for me that makes me really really excited and it's going to keep our cities greener as well if we're thinking about growing more plants in the city how on earth are we expecting expecting them to survive if we're ignoring half of their mm. life cycle which is the reproductive cycle mm. do you think the bees will get stressed from working harder from living in the city like we do yeah, I don't know. They might need to go on like a break and be like, I just, I just need to go to the beach. I just need to let my hair down. <laughs> bees actually do have hair, so that's quite... Um. But when it's less... I mean, you're talking about a less commercial use of bees. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, you would hope, as you say, there's better production of honey. Mm. I mean, when I grow vegetables in my backyard, I can tell you they taste a lot better yeah. than what I buy. Yeah. And so it's that, you know, that smaller use. Um, yeah. Is better. It's sort of... It's helping that sort of small food movement of if we can mm. produce more things locally, we'll actually have... We'll reduce transport costs and storage which can actually decrease the quality of the food so if we have more bees we're more likely to have better quality food closer in yeah um but i I think the biggest problem for a lot of people wanting to get involved in beekeeping is it's actually quite time consuming to harvest the honey which is part of what your job as a beekeeper is it's not the only thing you've got to take care of the hive but the honey harvesting itself can take an entire day it's messy if you live with somebody else and they don't want honey all over the house then you're gonna have a tough time convincing them it's a good idea Mm. but A solution that came around recently from New South Wales, um, a father and son duo, actually created what is called the Flow Hive. Now, this is really cool. They made it that instead of having to take the hive apart and shake out the honey from the hive, what you can do is you insert a crank into the hive itself and turn a lever, and that actually splits the honeycomb so that the honeycomb can effectively just trickle out of the hive on its own goodwill. Um, And it sounds a bit too good to be true, but it actually does work. And their goal was... Within the first, you know, year, they wanted to earn about seventy thousand US dollars, and seventy thousand. Yeah, I said that right. And then, but within the first fifteen minutes, they actually got two hundred and fifty thousand people, or two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of people pledging to this product. Mm. So mm. there's a massive interest in this easy harvey, honey harvesting, and most of those people that put in the pledge was were actually newbies, so totally new to the beekeeping game. Um, which means there is really a demand, and people are really excited about this idea of being able to keep bees. Um, the biggest thing that I think we need to keep in mind with this, I think it's fantastic. If if more bees are being kept, we're going to have a better urban society. Um, and even outside in rural areas, it, it could save commercial harvesting 
honey harvesters, mm. hours, days, who knows how long it takes. Um, but what's really important, I had a chat to the guys down at um, Collingwood Children's Farm and they keep bees there and they have them on display every second and fourth Sunday. They're actually there today if you want to go chat to them. Um, but they were talking about the fact that if you're getting a floor hive because you're afraid or unsure of interacting with your bees, then it's probably not the best thing for you because you still need to be quite committed to taking your hive apart, having a look at mm. the bees' health yep. because there are threats on them like diseases and mites that are imposing upon Australia. So if you're not really ready to interact with your bees, maybe it's still not your best bet. But the fact that you can now harvest honey a lot easier could make it a lot easier for a lot of people to get involved. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. And I think the bees, we're going to take care of the bees. Mm. But I, yeah, as I always say in the show, 90% of my bee knowledge comes from Jerry Seinfeld and yeah. the bee movie. <laughs> but I am learning, I am learning new things. Yeah. But it is, it is one of those uh, areas where I think, you know, the more people realise just how reduced in quality mm. honey is mm. when it's processed, yep. and what's left is kind yep. of all, but may taste okay, but it's kind of useless. Yep. And when you buy, you know, I always go down. There's a guy at Melbourne University when yeah. they have their their, their market. <laughs> yeah, there's always the bees around his. Yeah. Um, Amazing, there's always bees around this guy. It's like they yeah. love him. Not the bees he brought <laughs> with him. Or, but um, but his honey's so much better than, yeah. than what you can buy in the supermarket or mm. anywhere else. So yeah, it's good stuff. Makes a real difference. Oh yeah, um, I was just gonna say to Rosie that I'm one of those people who actually pledged to um, allergic. No, no, no. I, I, I pledged to actually oh. help the flow guide actually nice. create. Yeah. 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 Very shamefully, but I, I'm one of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and. Um, with that design, they actually have a glass on the side, so you can check, like, actually check the hive without disturbing the bee. Mm. Oh, so that is pretty, pretty good. So, so, so the other thing is, you know, there's people who are allergic to bee stings, and, that, and this yeah. is, this is yeah. a serious issue. My wife's allergic to bee stings. You don't, I mean, geez, you don't want to see it. It's like the elephant man. Which <laughs> is no, I've never seen it. I'm only joking, but, um, but you know, she she'll end up in hospital if exactly. she gets stung by a bee. So there's a care factor there as well. Yeah, you have to be careful. So yeah. it's really important you get a bit of hands-on experience because you don't really want to set up a I've spent all these year, like years getting it ready and really going and get one stick mm. and realize it's going to kill you. So yeah. if you are interested, it's really cool to get some good hands-on experience. So yep. you can head on down to the Collingwood's Children's Farm and they'll put you in a bee suit. They'll show you exactly what it means to check how the, the hive goes um, and know what to look for when you want to harvest your honey. So I think, yeah, nothing really can substitute that first contact. Yeah. So once you've done that, I think it's an awesome idea. Kind of want to do that. I know. Yeah. Then today, I'm, I'm going there after this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. they will have a rush today now, <laughs> thanks to you. Two separate suits though. Uh, Richard, what do you got for us? Oh, right, yes. So, oh, Molly, actually this wasn't coordinated, but I think I may have the answer to your detecting your volcano. We don't have to rely on Nancy's crack in her, in her wall, hopefully. <laughs> um, so last November, uh, the wife and I, we went on honeymoon and we went mountaineering in uh, Argentina and Chile. And um, obviously in that region, there are lots of volcanoes. It's on that Pacific ring of fire. We passed quite close to a few. Uh, one called Calbuco. I think I've got that right. Um, erupted fairly recently in, in 2015, and there's still lots of evidence of that, lots of ash underfoot and that sort of thing. Oh, uh, by the way, if if uh, 10 kilometer high columns of fire surrounded by lightning float your boat, then uh, <laughs> uh, look up the pictures online. They're amazing. They're really spectacular. Um, per- see, personally, I like the term pyroclastic flows. Oh, yes. Oh. Whenever I hear it, I think, wow. Yeah, that's a great term, <laughs> that's a great isn't it? Term. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Um, so basically volcanoes are cool, right? So one unless, unless, unless you're living in Bali right, right now. Oh, no, absolutely. I should not add cool that. At no, not at all. Quite <laughs> the opposite yeah, yeah, of cool, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so a notable thing about um, Calbuco is there was very little warning. Um, 
uh, scientists noticed volcanic earthquakes in the region about an hour before, um, and it's quite a well-populated area, so they had to evacuate about 5,000 people with basically no notice. Everyone was okay, by the way, um, but it, did get, it got me thinking about uh, volcanic early warning systems. So if you look at the numbers... There's about 1,500 active volcanoes in the world right now, but only a few dozen are heavily monitored. Uh, one contributive uh, factor is uh, the equipment is quite varied and quite expensive, and it also takes a lot of scientists uh, to process the data, so there's a cost factor in there. So it, um, what this means is we're only monitoring a tiny fraction of the Earth's surface. So our ability to study and predict volcanic eruptions and earthquakes on a global scale is, is pretty poor, um, you know, especially in less developed regions where monitoring is pretty much absent. So there's an initiative uh, which is looking to address this. It's called Comet. Uh, they're based in the UK, and they're trying to build up a relatively real-time picture of seismic activity for the entire globe. And they're doing this using data um, from a couple of satellites. So it's the European Space Agency Sentinel-1A and Sentinel-1B satellites. Uh, these satellites orbit 180 degrees apart, and they use radar. And uh, they're building up a global image of things like sea ice, oil spills, a whole bunch of things, uh, including changes in topography, uh, down to a few millimetres. I find that unbelievable, uh, absolutely unbelievable. Um, so the Comet team are using this data, which is freely available online. It's just out there. You can go and look at it yourself. Uh, they're using it to monitor bulges and dips in the Earth's surface, and that gives them an idea of what's going on beneath the surface. Um, it's being described as a game-changer, so it not only improves prediction of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, but it's also uh, improving our understanding of how they work. I'll give you some examples. Uh, so prior to the, ice, the Icelandic volcano Burda Bunker, I think Ooh. I have that. Apologies, <laughs> apologies to any Icelandic people out there. Uh, Burda Bunker erupted in 2014. And before it erupted, the, one, of the, one of Comet's scientists tracked this bulge of lava moving beneath the surface, and it travelled 47 kilometres in six months before it, it, mm. it blew. Uh, and the length of that path was a bit of a surprise. Um, they had a look at the Kaikoura earthquake last year in New Zealand, um, and they found it was uh, due to the rupturing of an interlinked network of, of 12 faults, uh, which made it the most complex earthquake ever observed, apparently. And, and those observations have had some major impacts on our understanding of, of earthquakes. Um, and also, finally, when scientists noticed uh, volcano stirring in the Galapagos Islands, they were able to contact Comet, and Comet could then come back to them and say, look, this is just magma moving five kilometres beneath the Earth, so don't worry, an imminent eruption is pretty unlikely. Um, so, as you can see, although this has only been uh, running since 2014, uh, they've already produced some really interesting results and proved uh, certainly proved their predictive worth. Now, now, you should note this approach doesn't work in all cases, so it's hard to track uh, surface deformations where there's dense vegetation, you know, where you've got a tropical rainforest, for example. So you have to supplement the uh, data with field work. Um, but uh, putting the field work and the satellite data together uh, basically seems like we're entering this new era of volcanology. Um, and seismology, have I got that right? It's knowledge, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which could ultimately save lives, um, well, including, uh, people on their honeymoon in South America, clearly. <laughs> yeah. 
Look, at, I mean, super interesting stuff, especially at the moment, because one of the things that people forget is that many of these volcanoes, uh, as you said, they're fed by magma that is not nearby sometimes. Sometimes it travels a fair distance to yeah, get right. to the output. And in some places around the world, that magma is currently pinched off by the weight above it, that right. weight being ice. And as you start removing the ice, because uh, we warm up the climate... Yeah. So one of the big concerns in some of the Icelandic uh, volcanoes and so forth is that you're basically allowing these magma chambers to to move around quite in the way they haven't done before. And you know when you when you're talking about kilometres of ice, there's you know there's a big change in what will happen in Antarctica and here and so forth, and it changes that distribution right. of mass quite significantly. So being able to observe this from from space, yeah, um, is fabulous. And there's they're, they're planning, they're trying to write. I don't know if many have done it already. They're basically writing an algorithm that can start flashing mm. up red flags. So as you said, if we're starting to get activity where we've never seen it before, you know, if if we're just constantly monitoring this stuff, and mm. uh, then, then it becomes a lot more effective. Yeah, no, it's super cool stuff. All right, well, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a few minutes. We've got some more more news for you. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on three triple R. Three triple R. Now, we have some more news for you before we go. Uh, Nancy, you're first. What do you got? Awesome. So if you, somebody you really care about suddenly feel really sad or down and they're not sleeping at all, then you would hope that they're not developing depression. Mm. Yeah, because it sounds like it. But then again, what is depression anyway? So depression is not a single disorder. It's actually like a class of condition and separated by severity and duration. So, for example, major depressive disorder occur when a person actually feeling sadness, hopelessness, and anger that persisted like a period of weeks, and it interfered with their daily life, really. And the most, you know, sad thing is that depression is likely to strike many people, a lot of us, you know, some degree in throughout our lifetime. And we know that the most common treatment currently are antidepressant. But, you know, this drug takes, like, weeks to actually see any result at all. And now, currently, it's going to sound really counterintuitive, but forceful sleep deprivation in a controlled inpatient setting has shown rapidly reduced in symptom of depression in patients. No way. Yes. That yes just sounds, way. Yes that just way. sounds the exact opposite of what yes you Yes way. It's crazy. So basically the researcher showed that if you sleep for, let's say, three to four hours and then you are forced to stay awake for 20, 21 hours or you just not sleep at all for 36 hours deliberately, it worked perfectly. And, you know, the medication that they're taking at the time actually does not influence this result at all. Like, it's amazing. When I read it, I just went, weird, but crazy good. But we shouldn't celebrate it just yet. Sorry, guys. Because we still need further research, obviously. So, first of all, actually, to in- identify, you know, we see the result, but we don't understand and mm. understand how, you know, not sleeping actually caused the significantly reduction in the symptom of depression. And furthermore, we actually need research to find out how to identify these patients who would most likely to benefit from sleep deprivation. Not, not, not to mention, I mean, you know, there's some researchers out here, I'm sure, getting excited about this, but the, the reality is sleep deprivation gives you a whole lot of symptoms. Yes. One yes. of those symptoms might not be depression. It is in some people, but yeah. there are a whole lot of other symptoms like inability to function and work and, and interact in, in a normal way that yeah. I take, frankly, the depression over that. You know, those things will, yeah, as, yeah. as, as, 
as damaging uh, potentially. It's really yeah, tricky. But- 30 years of research, they, they, they've done this, they always knew. So basically all the psychiatrists mm. always knew that if you're not sleeping and if you force yourself or basically if they force their patient to not sleep for a long period of time deliberately, they show within the next 24 hours a decrease in all of this symptom mm. that I told before when you guys told you guys about it. Hopelessness, yeah, anger, yeah. but we don't understand why it works. Well. So It's interesting that when someone talks about being sleep deprived, the symptoms they would describe is what I'd associate with depression. Yes, yes. So I'm wondering if maybe it does, yeah, it's probably a bigger underlying cause. Mm. It could be like a hormonal mm. thing. Like there's, there's probably a billion different parts it could be involved with, yeah, but, but it's, it's odd. It's, it's very odd. counterintuitive. Uh, yes, yeah. very, very. As I often say, it's a young science. <laughs> oh. It is a young science, and it's got a long way to go in some of these areas because there's really a lot mm. of unknowns in that sort of research. Yeah. And um, but it's, but it's an interesting parameter to yeah. chuck into the mix. Interesting parameter. So very good. Thank you, Nancy. Molly, bring us home. All right. Well, yeah, I'm just going to start by annoying my mum. Of course, you're on radio. Okay. Best way. So my mum introduced this series of like four rules for my brother and I once we hit adulthood. And then I'm only going to talk about one of them today, which was no kids until we're 30 because she doesn't want grandkids just yet. She doesn't want to have to deal with the baby. (laughs) (laughs) Your mum sounds like a tyrant. Yeah. Yeah. They're not strictly enforced, don't worry. But like that, that thing about when you have kids like what age you should be having kids is really tricky in the modern day because there's all of these pressures to be financially Mm -hmm. stable and things before you have kids but then we're given quite a strict range of time in which it's safe to have kids before you start running the risk of um, certain conditions becoming more prevalent um but the, the more research we do, whilst it's mainly been focused on women, like the more research we do, it's men get to play this game as the strict timeline too. <laughs> so there's some recent research being done um, in, uh, uh, was it Scandinavia? Uh, where they took 15,000 uh, people and looked at the rate of um, mutations in um, either their eggs for women or sperm for men. And it turns out that as men age, they have four times the rate of mutations happening <laughs> in their sperm that oh. women's do, than women do in their eggs. That's a disturbing number. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Richard, four <laughs> times. Lucky, can I just say, lucky we've got so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's that thing. So with women, when they're born, they have all of the eggs they're ever going mm. to have. So any mutations that happen are through degradation over time as they age whereas with men they're constantly undergoing kind of this process of replication and that they scientists seem to think maybe it's that that constant need to replicate that's causing these errors to happen you know like when you photocopy something one too many times eventually mm. it gets harder and harder to read so you're saying old guys can't make good sperm so there's definitely <laughs> definitely men face similar sorts of issues with aging and child um having children that women do which is quite interesting because for a while there the, the theory of knowledge has been kind of that it's mainly women that's affected by this but so, um, so the, I, the, the big question there for me is yeah. we, we've had our, our society has had this mindset around how old you should have kids 100 percent based on women's egg health mm. but the question is is that age still the same when you bring this into it or is it 10 years earlier or 10 you know what's the male point like is is that point where we say you know it's it's getting risky at this point is that the same point 
for a man as it is for a woman because it might be that for a man it's 10 years later in which case you don't have to care about it mm-hmm. or it could be that it's 10 years earlier mm-hmm. in which case guys really have to start thinking about it or it could be a combination of the things well, no both doubt, yeah. yeah the same yeah. age yeah um it's quite interesting especially given that the, the well the mutations aren't happening in the same spots so for men they kind of happen all over the genome whereas in women the mutations that happen are happening in one part of the dna so it's mm. understanding fully the effects is it's really massively a watch this space kind of thing at the yeah. moment. I mean, there's no doubt to me that the answer is going to come out that more older women should be dating younger men <laughs> <laughs> to compensate for um, the, the older men being useless. But, uh, you know, is, that, is that where it's going to go? I think that's the logical conclusion. <laughs> uh, but I, I think for, for people who are actually listeners to this and they, they actually worry about I think one of the ways actually having constantly check up with yourself, you know, get comfortable with the check up, really. Mm. And it, it's not things shameful about it just go and have yourself a little checkup every year or so and in that way you can really monitor if there is actually any changes at all to your Mm. health and obviously your sperm count and how they swim and whatnot (laughs) and especially the guy i mean guys are really good at not going to the doctor Mm. and (laughs) and you do you need you need to get your little guys checked you do you you um, really do i mean yeah. That's <laughs> no. Do, do you know, it's funny. I found at one point, this, this is an in- interesting story, but I found at one point when uh, my wife and I were breeding dogs. Um, and so you showing... just believe it, we were breeding it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, we bred the dogs first because we thought we'd try, try that, see how hard yep. it is. And then, um, but we, we actually did more in terms of the health of the reproductive systems of our dogs than we did with ourselves as, as human yeah. beings. Like we were constantly in the vet making sure this was right and that was right because, you know, this is a big deal and it costs a lot of money and there's a lot in it and you want to make sure it's right. And so we spent an incredible amount of time and at one point I realised, geez, I haven't even spent that much time on myself, <laughs> you know, so, or money or, or, you know, enough checks or, you know, down to the local, you know, whatever, but um, all good. Well, Thank you very much for that. That's a uh, no good worries. one. I'll keep, I'll keep that in mind. Thankfully, I've had my kids and I don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm all, I'm all done as well. Yeah. And you get to that point where uh, if you look up sperm banks and there's an age limit and you realise, oh, <laughs> they don't want me anymore. So many things like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, we've uh, we've had a great time today. We've had uh, Jen's students in. She's lurking over the back, but she hasn't said much. Have they done okay, Jen? What do you reckon, Dr. Shane? I reckon they've done an awesome job. Yeah, I think we don't need the regular team back. We'll just keep these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys free next Sunday and the Sunday yeah. after and the Sunday after. Perfect. Okay, we're sorted. <laughs> All right, we're done. Um, thank so you for having us, a Shane. Huge, a huge thank you to you guys. I know you put in a massive amount of work, so thanks for coming in, and hopefully everyone's enjoyed it and had some amazing science, and I know it's fun to present. It's fun to listen to as well. So, uh, well done. Congratulations. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks, Shane. Thank yeah. you and, so much uh, for having us. And I hope, I hope you all accept the fact that tomorrow night the new Star Trek show starts and that after we leave the studio, <laughs> that's all we're going to talk about. <laughs> and, uh, Dr. Shane, you're also going to tweet out a little link that these guys are keen for our listeners to respond to, aren't I, you, I will, because you gave me a very stern look. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I will do that. Um, folks, we will share this uh, on our Facebook site, and there is a survey up there if you want to let people know in the studio what you thought of them um you can do that or you can just be rude to me whichever works best um but either way we'd appreciate your feedback thanks so much for listening to einstein and go go have a fabulous sunday and we'll chat to you again with some more science next week this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au